This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Less than three weeks after the United States pulled its final troops out of Afghanistan, the situation there remains fraught for those left behind. The United States has evacuated some 120,000 people out of the country, nearly 1,700 of whom are refugees who will be settled here in Washington state. But the effort to evacuate those who are still under threat from the Taliban government continues. And we have two of our dear friends here to talk about the work they've been doing and about how you can help. Anil Absali is the executive director of the American Muslim Empowerment Network at the Muslim Association of Puget Sound or MAPS. Amen. Hello, Anil. How are you? Hello there, Stefan. Uh, Thank you for having me. It has been a traumatizing and tragic time, to say the least. You know, I I always love seeing you, of course, but I I wish you could be under better circumstances. Um, And uh, Chris Franco uh, is also with us. He is an Afghanistan combat veteran and is also director of military and veterans affairs with the Truman National Security Project. Chris, how are you, man? I'm doing all right, Stefan. Appreciate you having us. It is, uh, to Neil's point, it's it's been a brutal last uh, month or so in particular, and um, just appreciate you, you know, covering this. Well, it's I think it's something that absolutely needs to be talked about, and I, I think we want to go some places that uh, other uh, news sources may not be covering, particularly what the situation is really like on the ground, because I know both of you have been doing so much work there. Um, but before we get into that, Neil, I just want to ask you bluntly, what are your thoughts about the way that the U.S. handled the withdrawal? I, I think it was an absolute failure, uh, a significant failure that's going to have continuing repercussions and harm. And it was really handled in a way, the evacuation, the withdrawal, I should say, was handled in a way that uh, reflected simply either incompetence and or a callous disregard for the lives, safety and well-being of the people of, Af- of Afghanistan. Uh, And I say that I myself am Afghan-American. I have a family in Kabul who I'm trying to currently uh, find ways to evacuate. Uh, And there are so many in the Afghan-American community who have family and friends and loved ones who are now at grave danger because of the way that the U.S. executed the withdrawal. And I say that despite the fact that I'm against these forever wars, I'm against the military industrial complex, I'm against imperialism and invasion of foreign lands. I, of course, abhor the trillions of dollars uh, that we wasted in the in the war uh, in Afghanistan for 20 years, and which we really gave as a gift to the defense contractors, U.S. defense contractors. So, of course, I want an end to all of that. At the same time, the way this was handled, the, the withdrawal, the way it was handled, absolutely deserves the harshest of criticism and condemnation. Um, first and foremost, I will say that we will return to uh, the subject of your family uh, because uh, we share the concern, of course. Um, Chris, I, I, I know that this is bringing up a lot of things for you as somebody who serves. I just want to give you the space also to talk about how you're feeling about the, the withdrawal and, and the situation in general. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more with Anila. Uh, as someone that served in the the war in Afghanistan uh, and really fighting alongside our Afghan brothers and, and sisters out there who were promised uh, the opportunity to come here through a special government visa through their service and putting themselves and their families at risk of of doing so, um, it has been appalling, absolutely appalling, and deeply disappointing and frustrating to to watch our government utterly fail to come up with a sound plan to the, at a bare minimum ensure the safe evacuation of our allies, of our own personnel. We had 20 years 
This is our nation's longest war, and we had 20 years to get a semblance of a plan. And I was just a, a company-grade officer, and we were taught the backwards plan, plan with the end in mind. Uh, and that end in mind should have absolutely included ensuring that everybody that put themselves and their families at risk to help us and keep us safe and, and assist us with our mission uh, was evacuated. And that just simply did not happen. Um, I'm grateful for the, the 120,000 uh, souls that were able to get out of Afghanistan, but we still have many more that need to get out and so many that have been promised uh, the opportunity to build a better life here um, that, you know, the, those promises were not honored. And we have to do better as a government. We should have learned from previous wars to make sure that this didn't happen. But the fact that it has happened is something that um, we need to sit with as a country and we need to own uh, and we need to do everything in our power to make it right. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to talk about uh, some of the ways that we're going to be working, that I know both of you are working to, to, to evacuate people. But we, we do want to get a sense of what's going on on the ground there, because I know both of you have been in contact with people there. And Neil, of course, you with your family. What can you tell us about the situation in Afghanistan right now? Sure. It's a uh, it's, uh, terrifying time. Uh, people are, of course, concerned about the Taliban, which is now back in control, back in power. They are far more powerful today than they were 20 years ago, uh, thanks in part to uh, the you know billions of dollars of military equ equipment that we left behind, that the U.S. left behind, uh, including biometric information and, and more. And these are now in the hands of the Taliban. And we have heard on the ground reports of the Taliban going to various districts, going door to door, uh, questioning people, interrogations, beatings, uh, people being flogged, people being abused. Uh, women, of course, in particular, have borne the brunt of some of the uh, discrimination and targeting by the Taliban. And in fact, just today, uh, there's been reports about the, the Taliban shutting down the Women's Affairs Ministry and mm -hmm. replacing it with a department that uh, previously was used to really perpetuate abuses against the people of Afghanistan. Um, so that is something that's happening that just happened today. Today uh, and uh, again, the the threats, uh, the social media threats that people are even facing, uh, the fact that WhatsApp and other programs uh, have been compromised makes it really difficult to communicate safely. Uh, you have to be careful with everything you do and try in terms of even sharing information. Uh, there's a lot of uh, misinformation out there as well that's circulating, so it's hard to uh, decipher or determine what's what's true or what's not. Uh, and there's just a real difference in the rhetoric of the Taliban and the Taliban leaders versus the reality on the ground, or some of their promises versus the actual policies uh, that we are seeing uh, in place. Um, so it's just a very uh, worrying time. I mean, I've been very anxious the, the past month, pretty much. Uh, Afghan Americans that I know uh, across the board, across the country, are, are very fearful right now for the safety and well-being of their family and loved ones. Uh, it has been traumatizing. Uh, just to, to see this and not to even be able to help. And even watching that August 31st deadline, that alone, watching that the window close, the opportunity for people who were in danger, their opportunity, their window of opportunity closing.
passing, um, that was really terrifying to watch. And it was, you know, I described it to, to somebody, for those who are familiar with The Handmaid's Tale, uh, it, it, it seemed to me like, you know, the Gilead forces taking over a country and people trying to evacuate to, to Canada, except this was real life with people I know and love and so many other people who sacrificed so much for our country. And yet we broke our promises to them. We, we betrayed them. We've abandoned them in a lot, in a very uh, significant way. And the reality of knowing that most of those people, including those we made promises to, are likely not going to get out. So it's just a very horrifying situation right now. So, Chris, I'll ask you about this. Um, there are still a small number of U.S. citizens who remain in Afghanistan out of the 120,000 who were evacuated. But it's my understanding there are 145,000 U.S. allies still there. Who, who are these people? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot of the folks that served by our side for the last 20 years. They're family members, folks that served with uh, NGOs uh, as contractors uh, within the Afghan government, women, uh, children. I mean, the, just the wide array of, of folks that have worked in some fashion uh, for the Afghan government and our own government or our allied nations uh, that were, were promised a, a means out for their service. And, um, you know, unfortunately, you'd mentioned, uh, Anila, the, uh, you know, the 31st and, and uh, to watch that window of opportunity close. And, you know, equally so, it's been um, arguably that window closed even sooner for a lot of these 145,000 folks that needed to get out after that suicide bombing at the Abbey Gate. Um, of the four gates uh, at Hamid Karzai International Airport that uh, were there to process folks and get them in and, and a flight out, only one of those four was designated for Afghan nationals, uh, which, um, you know, is difficult in its own. And then add in the additional layers of, uh, of the Taliban essentially controlling the entry to uh, that gate. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's prevented a lot of the very folks that we promised a way out um, uh, the complete lack of opportunity to, to do so. And uh, we still have a lot of work ahead of us to uh, ensure that we can get our, our Afghan allies out of there safely uh, with the conditions on the ground. Right now. Yeah, I, I, and I, I wanna talk specifically in a moment about what you're doing, but I'll just ask you because I know that you worked with interpreters over there. It, it just seems astonishing to me that, that the, the interpreters specifically are the ones who seem like they would be most in danger in this particular situation. And they got no information or very little information ahead of time from the U.S. government. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And I think that's one of the most frustrating elements about this evacuation uh, and the, the plan or lack thereof is um, so many of the folks that were promised a way out uh, and to honor their service had quite literally no formal communication from our government about the evacuation, what's needed, guidance. Even now, that's the case for a great many folks. Uh, if it wasn't for uh, you know veterans or others that have uh, maintained contact uh, with their Afghan brothers and sisters on the ground, uh, a lot of folks would have had absolutely no guidance, no information, no one to walk through and talk through what's going on with them um, from that perspective. And, and that is just a fundamental failure. Uh, and that is, that is ongoing right now. Um, there are certainly efforts being made by a lot of folks that have stepped up uh, to assist with evacuation efforts to fill those voids. Uh, but again, a lot of them not coming from official government channels. Um, and, and that is still very much at play in a significant gap in communications and guidance for folks that uh, desperately need to get out so that um, they, they don't fall to the hands of the, the Taliban. You know, the, the rationale that we have heard from the United States government is that they felt that they would be transmitting 
uh, to the Taliban, uh, what their plans were for evacuation. Um, something doesn't quite add up there. W what was your take on, on, on that rationale? Complete it. Straight up. Um, what, what do you, what do you, what, why do you think it was done the way that it was done? And, and why do you think these interpreters were not given this information? I wish I knew. Um, I mean, I, I don't buy that excuse from our government because um, we could discreetly move people out of country. We could have ex expedited the uh, SIV process and other processes to file for P1, P2 refugee status, humanitarian parole. Any number of things could have been done to increase uh, the capacity and the resources dedicated to that effort uh, to make up for the time we lost under the Trump administration. Uh, but that didn't happen. And I understand the, you know, this, this uh, desire to not create panic, but there are a number of ways that we could, uh, we can move folks out of country, expedite this process and safeguard them and ensure that um, we, we had a plan in place and security in place to, to get more folks out. And the folks that, that served alongside us uh, waiting to the 11th hour uh, resulted in our, you know, right, I get it, American citizens and legal permanent residents uh, being prioritized, but that left uh, a great many of our Afghan allies left to fend for themselves, uh, which is why so many folks still need to get out. This is exactly why I said it was a callous disregard for the lives and safety and well-being of the people of Afghanistan. Uh, things could have been done differently. They should have been done differently. They still need to be done differently. I mean, even now I hear about how the Department of State, for instance, is an impediment to evacuation rather than mm -hmm. assisting any of the efforts, even by uh, private sources that are happening on the ground right now. So there's so much to bl uh, so much blame that can go around, including on, of course, uh, the Trump administration uh, for the negotiations. They had the, the prisoner releases that they made, the, uh, the, the withdrawal dates that they set and everything else. Uh, along with the gutting of the resettlement program and essentially bringing a halt to the processing of the special immigrant visas and more. So there's a lot of blame that can go around, including the, the presidents before then as well, during the course of the 20 years uh, that we've been in Afghanistan. But I really want to emphasize another point, which is that it isn't just about the folks who helped the U.S. in a mission for 20 years that was really flawed from the, from the get-go, from the beginning. Uh, it's also about all the other people that we have a moral responsibility to that we completely abdicated over the course of the 20 years. And that hurt not just the people of Afghanistan, but our own Americans here at home. U.S. tax dollars who gave trillions of dollars of our hard-earned money uh, to a war that really lined the pockets of U.S. defense contractors and corrupt warlords. And that corruption is something that we as a nation for 20 years continually perpetuated and supported and built up more than anything else. We've helped build corruption. Uh, and uh, yes, there was some good that came out of the 20 years that we were there. Some of the nonprofit organizations and other organizations on the ground, some of the changes that they made, some of the people of Afghanistan themselves stepping up and advocating for their rights and, and getting uh, things built up and, and supporting uh, each other. That was all some of that so some of that nation building was evident, but there was, of course, uh, uh, 
often the wrong reasons that we were doing what we were doing, and it was not for the sake of benefiting the people of Afghanistan. There were other reasons for it, including other reasons for our invasion in the first place that, again, a lot of people do not talk about. I would highly recommend that people uh, read or uh, the, the Afghanistan papers to learn about the lies and the mistakes and miscalculations and abuses over the course of the 20 years uh, that the American people were told about what was happening in Afghanistan, along with uh, understanding the other reasons that motivated our desire to go into Afghanistan, just like in other places like Iraq, which have to do with the trillion plus dollars of mineral wealth that exists in Afghanistan and the geopolitical strategic location of the country and the desire for a natural gas pipeline through the country. So all of these are additional reasons that really support sort of imperialism and empire building that were uh, part of the calculation for a lot of the decisions around Afghanistan in a way that really used the people of Afghanistan Afghanistan as a pawn, including with with you know the Cold War before uh, before our 20 years in Afghanistan. So I want people to understand the bigger context of what's happening here and really understand that the role that the U.S. and our own country played in destabilizing and really damaging Afghanistan for the entire people there, uh, including also our uh, allies who supported us and, and risked their lives for our U.S. forces, but certainly not exclusively for them. We owe moral responsibility to the entire country not just to the people who stood with U.S. forces uh, in Afghanistan. Anila, thank you. Uh, I really thank you so much for, for, for bringing all that perspective, doing it so succinctly. Um, I think there's so much that people really do need to learn uh, about uh, the Afghanistan war and, and certainly the, the Iraq war as well. But I think Afghanistan tends to be a little bit more forgotten and a lot of the things that you're seeing are so important. I will have references to a lot of what you talked about in the show notes. I do want to shift uh, gears a little bit and talk about some of the work that both of you are doing for people on the ground. Um, Anila, who, who are the people that you are focusing on helping in Afghanistan right now and what are you doing? Well, inside Afghanistan, I'm trying to get my own family members. Uh, my mom's side of the family lives in Afghanistan, uh, along with a cousin on my dad's side. So their family, there's about 26 family members that I'm working on trying to, to get out, to get evacuated from Kabul. Uh, and uh, it includes an aunt and an uncle who both directly were beaten by the Taliban during their prior rule. So my family has direct experience to draw upon when they fear uh, that the Taliban's rule and take over now. Uh, along with somebody who was uh, an SIV applicant as well, uh, and somebody else who's uh, uh, engaged to somebody in Germany and cannot get out, so separated from their fiance right now as well. So trying to work with different organizations, again, private organizations, along with uh, congressional representatives and offices to see what we can do to help my own family members get out of Afghanistan. Uh, but the options seem so extremely limited. There's a bureaucratic process, there's a lot of red tape, there's lists and databases, and, and there's fear and concern about some of that information getting into the hands of the Taliban. Uh, and it's just a convoluted mess. And there's these forms, and now with humanitarian parole applications, mm -hmm. trying to do all of that. It is such a mess that I myself, as you know, a Harvard Law educated attorney, I can't even make sense of it all. And if I can't do that, I can't even imagine so many others who are trying to navigate this system right now. And a lot of Afghan Americans I know here in Washington state are all going through the same convoluted mess right now. And at the end of the day, we're just not getting answers really from anybody, from the Department of State, from members of Congress, from any anywhere you turn, the, the Biden administration, nobody seems to know what's going on or really have any clear sense of how we are gonna evacuate 
all of these hundreds of thousands of folks who are in serious danger right now, in large part because of our country's actions in Afghanistan. I just want to say that um, all of our hearts are with you and your family right now. And um, I'll just ask you, because I think people listening and watching will will have the same question. Is there anything at all that people watching and, and listening can help you with in this situation right now? Absolutely. I've gotten a lot of support, of course, in the form of prayers and supportive messages and everything. But in terms of real work on the ground, there's uh, a lot of people who need assistance with filing the humanitarian parole applications. So volunteer attorneys can step up, step up and help with that. There are sponsors needed who can submit uh, uh, basically uh, financial forms that commit uh, that, that support the application for humanitarian parole. A lot of people need that. Uh, there's uh, specific uh, support with the uh, fees. The fees are $575 per person. So for my family of about 26 people, that comes close to $15,000 just to apply for something where the chance of even getting it is so extremely slim. And mm -hmm. all of these are barriers to entry, basically, for even getting considered for uh, potential evacuation. So those are sort of you know, financial help, legal help, uh, support with uh, signing up as financial sponsors. All of those are ways that people who are uh, facing the situation of have, having family and friends uh, in Afghanistan could definitely benefit from. And I know there's plenty more that people can do with the incoming Afghan families here in Washington state that we'll get to soon as well. Yeah, we'll get to that in just a moment. And uh, I will uh, speak to you as soon as we're done here and make sure that we have all of those resources in the show notes for folks to check out. Chris, I want to talk about some of your work because I know that this has been ongoing since uh, basically right, right before the evacuation was happening. Uh, tell us a little bit about some of the work that, that you've been doing and also if there are things that people can be doing to, to help you as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it initially started just keeping in, in contact with my Afghan brothers, um, you know, well be, before the withdrawal. And then as things just quickly fell apart in Afghanistan, just working through the Truman National Security Project and other organizations of folks that stepped up to, to fill that gap we mentioned before of the government not pushing out any formal guidance or communication to folks that needed out and, and kind of serving in that role of guiding them along which, which gates to go to, what they need to, you know, what kind of paperwork, um, the security situation on the ground. Uh, and that, that work is, is still ongoing uh, and unfortunately, you know, been unsuccessful, been able to get uh, my Afghan brothers and their families out. And that's unfortunately true of, you know, tens of thousands of others uh, and other veterans that are trying to help um, in, in this similar capacity. And, um, I mean, this this work is going to be ongoing. And to Anila's point, there's a lot of work to be done with respect to the humanitarian parole packets and the, and the paperwork that needs to be done to give folks a chance. Because uh, from the start, the, the priority has been American citizens, legal permanent residents, and hit or miss on actual SIV, uh, special government visa holders, let alone the, you know, the folks that are pending that uh, SAV status or the P1, P2 refugees or humanitarian parolee folks like there isn't a lot of information right now from any formal channels about what we're going to do to help them. It, it is still remains focused on those limited uh, American citizens and, and legal permanent residents that need to get out. Uh, and the best way to help right now, honestly, um, to step up, like Anila said, and, and helping out with the paperwork that needs to get done to give folks a chance to get out. Because it, it, we're kind of in a catch-22 situation right here where some folks require some form of status to be able to get on um, a, a flight or to have the means to travel outside of the, the country safely. 
um, to, to be able to come here. And um, it, it's a really difficult place to be in. So I hope folks really consider uh, to lean into the resources that uh, Anila is going to be providing to, to help out, to sign up and get the resettlement right. Um, the evacuation was an epic failure uh, in many ways from our government. And it's time for our government to step up and make commitments to get the resettlement right uh, and to continue the evacuation efforts. Uh, but the, the work has been uh, a combination of um, trying to get um, some American citizens, legal permanent residents, SIV folks, P1, P2, and humanitarian parole uh, folks out of Afghanistan safely with the means we have right now uh, through formal and informal channels, whatever it's going to take. I mean, at this point, we got to try everything. Um, but uh, aside from that, just trying to help support Anila's great work and the work of uh, our Afghan community and our resettlement organizations to get them what they need and to help uh, put pressure on our members of Congress and uh, other leaders here at the local level to to step up and, and to, to honor our promise in the ways that we can right now. I, I will just ask you, if I were somebody who were calling my, my member of Congress right now on, uh, on this subject, what, what should I say? What, what do you think would be the most effective message? Uh, so first off, to make sure they know that you care about Afghanistan and that you want to hold the Biden administration accountable for what happened there and what is happening, uh, to make sure that we emphasize the importance of safely evacuating all the vulnerable Afghans who are cur currently trying to evacuate from Afghanistan and to have a clear plan for that, uh, to really make sure that we expand some of these options like humanitarian parole or some of the other processing, SIV, P1, P2, P3. We expand them. We actually make them electronic processing and do it a lot quicker than, than is currently happening. Uh, and also to make sure any humanitarian aid that we send to Afghanistan, which now is you know, 18 million people are facing uh, starvation uh, and poverty right now. So any any humanitarian aid that we send to Afghanistan should go to NGOs working on the ground, not to the Taliban, uh, which could be used again against the people of Afghanistan. Uh, and finally, doing our part to really fund the resettlement program here in the U.S. and make sure that any Afghan evacuees who arrive here get the same level of benefits that uh, that, the, uh, that refugees get under the resettlement program. Because a lot of people aren't familiar with this new, new uh, word that we're hearing a lot, the humanitarian parole. Uh, right? That's a separate category. And humanitarian parolees do not, under current law, qualify for the same benefits that refugees get under the resettlement program. But there are people who've had to go through the humanitarian parole route, even if they might be special immigrant visa uh, applicants or uh, refugees or otherwise, because of the speed with which they had to evacuate Afghanistan, again, because of our hasty withdrawal from it. So uh, making sure that there's not this second class of citizenship created within the refugee program. We shouldn't have two classes. Everybody who arrives here uh, from Afghanistan should get the same level of benefits and support and integration so that they could be set up for success uh, as they build their new homes here. Um, and also specifically asking our members of Congress, uh, there's some action alerts that I will be sharing that uh, Stephanie can share with your audience as well, but there's things like the Welcomed Act, which seeks to make sure that the humanitarian parolees get the same benefit as, uh, as other refugees 
studies. And that act is currently co-sponsored by Pramila Jayapal from Washington State, but we do not yet have any other members of Congress signed on. That should change. And I think we can change that very quickly just by reaching out to our members of Congress, getting them to sign on and support that. Uh, and if folks call their members of Congress, if they can thank Jayapal and ask the other members of Congress to step up and sign on as co-sponsors uh, and also emphasize to them the importance of listening to uh, the Afghan voices themselves, Afghans and Afghan Americans on some of these issues, uh, because unfortunately, a lot of Afghan voices have been silent from the decisions and conversation around what's happening in Afghanistan, which has really resulted in the debacle over the past 20 years. I will also just add that we have three members here in the state who are members of the House Armed Services Committee. Uh, we have uh, Congresswoman Marilyn Strickland, Congressman Rick Larson, and of course the chair is Adam Smith. And so those would be three. If you happen to live in their districts, uh, please do uh, make your voice heard with them. So uh, we've talked about the refugee situation. Uh, and, and by the way, thank you for clarifying the humanitarian parole um, as I mentioned earlier, nearly I, I, the number is about 1,700 Afghan refugees are slated to come here to Washington state. Uh, Neil, I know that Muslim Association of Puget Sound Maps uh, has uh, some, some things that people can do to help. Can you talk about that? Sure. So MAPS has really been getting in involved in two ways. One, through the work I do with AMEN, uh, I've been trying to coordinate some of the efforts, some of the work that's happening on the ground with the resettlement agencies, with uh, some of our state actors, and with uh, community-based organizations that are really stepping up to try to uh, do their part in serving the incoming Afghan refugees. Um, so I've been trying to do a little bit of that coordination and really talking to elected leaders, private sources, uh, public sources, and more about a additional funding and support for the program and how we can best maximize our efficiency, our effectiveness, and avoid duplication. I've been involved in that kind of work. Uh, and then we do have a services and humanitarian program at MAPS called MCRC, Muslim Community Resource Center, which has been working to serve uh, refugees, including Afghan refugees, for years now. And they've been working with other service providers uh, to really step up on the services side. And there are wonderful organizations in our community like Afghan Health Initiative that are directly run by Afghans themselves, Afghan Americans, uh, and they do a fantastic job of integrating new Afghan families with the current local Afghan American community as well. And what we've been doing is bringing a lot of different organizations together like MAPS MCRC, Afghan Health Initiative, Kids for Peace, Afghans of Seattle, um, SCM Medical Missions, uh, uh, Refugee Women's Alliance, and more to talk about how we can all be collectively prepared to uh, to partner with the uh, resettlement agencies and support their work to make sure none of the incoming families fall through the cracks. Uh, so it's a coordinated effort, and we actually have a single sort of point of entry for that coordinated effort, and that's a Google form that uh, I'll be sharing with you. It's just a tiny URL backslash Afghans, and anybody who's interested in helping out this effort can fill out that Google form, identify exactly what kind of support or help or services they can offer, and then we have volunteer teams in each of the categories like interpretation or translation or housing or food, clothing, household goods, furniture, and more. And whenever volunteer needs arise, we've been sending out messages to the folks who've checked off certain categories uh, to see how we can get them integrated in this work. 
We have teams of volunteers. You know, this is all infrastructure we're building up, but we have teams of volunteers who are going through that Google form. We've gotten over a thousand responses to that, going through those individual forms and following up with the people who've identified the different ways they can help. So we are getting all of that in, in motion and really being prepared because as you said, Stefan, we do expect this influx of uh, humanitarian parolees and other Afghan families to arrive here in our region. Uh, and every single one of us can step up and do our part because these are the fortunate few who made it. There are so many who didn't make it. These are the, the tiny portion that did. The very least we can do is welcome them with open arms and really step step up and do our part to rise to this challenge and bring something positive coming out of, again, a really bad situation. But it's, it's encouraging to see bipartisan support right now for welcoming and helping Afghan refugees. And I hope that continues despite some of the xenophobia that we've already seen uh, as well. I was going to ask about that, and I think we, uh, particularly those of us on the progressive left, have uh, have a lot of work to do here in terms of keeping the message very positive about the people who are going to be coming uh, to this country. Um, Chris, uh, before we go, I, I just I know that as as somebody who served, um, and and we all at this point I think over a war that's that stretched twenty years, we know somebody uh, who has served uh, in Afghanistan. And that, that that people are hurting right now. I'm sure that vets are hurting right now, and that you are. What can we do to support uh, our fellow vet, your fellow vets, and and you? Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I, honestly, I think it's uh, twofold. One, help us honor the promise. Help us make good on our word as a country and give meaning to what we did in Afghanistan. And and sign up. And on the resources that Anila is going to provide and step up and do what you can to help. I mean, in, in 20 years of war, you know, you'd mentioned it before, this, this was really a war on the back burner and out of the minds of so many of the American people. And in a lot of ways, it's, it's moving back that direction um, in light of, you know, these, these unfolding um, crises and atrocities. Um, please help do your part to make this right and to fulfill our promise and to make whatever good we can out of, out of our nation's longest war by helping out the Afghan people. Uh, and then specifically for veterans, I mean, it's been brutal. Um, if I'm being honest, like this, this last month has probably been the most challenging month of my, my life in, in a lot of unique and different ways. And I know my my fellow veterans are are hurting uh and i i just i would say a couple things with respect to that um if you're a veteran uh talk about what's going on lean on each other lean on the folks that you served with uh family friends and and don't hold this in that that leads to uh unfortunate things and it's okay to get help the the stigma of of being you know weak if if you're looking for help is just bull uh and it's harmful and it's cost the lives of way too many of our fellow veterans who have, who have taken their lives or have um, gone down other paths that are harmful to themselves or their families um if folks want to help the veteran community uh check in with folks that have served uh, ask them about their experiences and what they're going through right now and, and listen and then act to help make this right um, with the resettlement efforts in particular. Uh, but this, this is 
this is an opportunity for our country to really sit with this war and to sit with the lies and the failings and, and the things that we, we need to learn from our nation's longest war and ensure that this never happens again. Uh, and, and I guess as a, as a veteran of this war, I ask that of folks, don't be afraid, like dive in and, and really sit with what has happened over these last 20 years and ensure that we, we have leaders that will make sure that if we send folks into harm's way, that it's for the right reasons, that we, we hold our leaders accountable and ensure that there's some transparency about what we're doing in the wars that we're engaging in and um, that we actually take our lessons learned and do something with them. Um, so check in on check in on the folks you know, and please help us fulfill this promise, help with the resettlement efforts, sign up to volunteer, check in with any Afghan Americans that you know, because they're going through a hell of a lot more than the veteran community. So just let's do this together. This is an opportunity for us to come together as a country and as a community to do what right we can. Uh, Anil, I'm, I'm just going to give you the floor to, to express any final thoughts you might have. I will say that I'm I'm a mess of emotions, you know, just in general the past few weeks, uh, and I am outraged. So if my comments earlier come out from a sense of outrage, it's it's because it's real. Uh, everybody should be enraged right now, and it's actually disturbing to me that so many have started already uh, turning their attention away from this. Uh, and the, the harm is continuing in a very real way. The danger is continuing, uh, and it's just. We, we cannot allow the administration or our country to turn its face away from this huge mess that we not only created, but continue to perpetuate in Afghanistan. And there are a couple uh, maybe additional points that I just want to mention that might be useful to your listeners as well. Uh, number one, I think it's really important for people to not conflate what the Taliban are doing, their brutal repressive behavior with Islam or Sharia. Uh, that's something that has happened and already you're seeing that. And that directly contributes to anti-Muslim sentiment in our country and xenophobia and more. So I really encourage people to understand the difference. And I'll share a link about that as well. But it's so critical for us to not uh, make comments that really uh, per uh, perpetuate Islamophobia in our efforts to uh, sort of condemn what the Taliban is doing or other groups like them. That's number one. And then number two, uh, you know, in our country in so many ways did abandon and betray the people of Afghanistan. Uh, but I hope the, 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 that we, the people, the American people, those that in whom I have faith and trust on something like this, I hope we will not turn away and forget the people of Afghanistan uh, or Afghanistan itself and what we did to the country. I think it's incumbent upon all of us to learn more, to read more about exactly what happened for, for the reason that Chris mentioned. We have to make sure it never happens again. And, you know, after 9-11, we talked about never forgetting 9-11. And, of course, we remember the victims of 9-11, and we will continue to do so. But let's make sure that our understanding of never forget includes all the other uh, consequences and harm and, and really significant amount of damage uh, to people, to lives, to to civilians, uh, to you know, just what we have done in the world, our response to 9-11 and the kind of trauma 
and hurt and suffering that we ourselves have perpetuated and continue to perpetuate. Let's not forget that. Let's not forget the 240 plus Afghans who are killed. Let's not forget the 5.3 million Afghans who are displaced. Let's not forget, you know, the $300 million per day per, for the past uh, 20 years that we have wasted in a way that really benefited the, the wrong people rather than helping the very people who needed our assistance and in the end made all of us less safe. So I hope our notions of never forgetting expand beyond just the immediate victims, the, the people that we grieve, that we lost here in America, uh, to include all the others, including just, you know, the the government today here in the uh, in the US uh, admitted the final uh, drone strike strike that we had in Afghanistan our parting gift as we were withdrawing of killing 10 civilians including seven children let's not forget those lives either i honestly can't thank both of you enough for taking the time to share some very very uh, painful uh, emotions to talk about your experiences to offer some extraordinary advice uh, we are in your debt. Uh, Anila, Chris, thank you both so much. Thank you, Stefan. Thank you, Stefan. Appreciate you, you having us. And that will do it for this week. Thank you again to Chris Franco and Anila Afsali. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. The website for the show is indivisiblepodcast.org, and the email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Lori Colwell, and as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.